to Psalm. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm. Everything's out of sync today, which is okay. Uh, to Psalm 51, and then we'll look at Luke very briefly. <clears throat> psalm 51, a Psalm of David. After he was, um, without any doubt, caught in terrible sin. Please just listen to the sentiment of David as he sings a psalm of lament to God. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There's a motion up the front, sorry. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And the second reading is in Luke's gospel, chapter six. As we continue this series in Luke, we're back in chapter six, verse 17, following. And he, that's Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea, and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. They come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled 
with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Our God and Father, our Lord, we do indeed humbly come before you now, asking that you would come, that you would speak, that you would entreat our hearts to truth, that you would incline our whole beings to you. And Lord, that you would encourage us, you would exhort us, you would admonish us, correct us, rebuke us, do what you need, Lord, and that today we would leave changed desiring to make you known and desiring to live for your glory. Please, Lord, speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we've had a couple of weeks off from Luke. We've had uh, Alistair Begg here, uh, not in person, although that would have been good too, uh, but on the screen from YouTube, and we've been considering the Sabbath. And I've certainly been challenged about what I do on the Sabbath whether I receive it as a gift and uh, spend it wisely for God. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that. But we are now back in Luke, and we are a little bit out of sync with the timing of things. We're meant to be in Luke 7, but I've decided to jump back to Luke 6, where I'd started a sermon some time ago and thought it'd still be good for us to hear it. So I hope um, we're not too confused or lost. Uh, just to give us some context, to remind us, since we've not been here for a while, Jesus is out and about. He's been up in Nazareth, and he has uh, opened the scroll in the synagogue and read from Isaiah and uh, given the people a bit of a, a shake. And he's been traveling around, and he's been healing. He's uh, healed a man who had a demon. He's healed a, he'd a, healed a leper. And then he healed someone with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he was criticized for that. We learned that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he starts calling his disciples. And at this section, we discover there's a lot of them, not just the 12, but there's a, lot, there's a multitude of people following Jesus for lots of different reasons. And he brings to them what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount exists in a small way in uh, Luke and a very grand, big way in Matthew. And if you remember right back to the beginning of Luke, Luke's recording by interview what happened uh, in, the, in the narrative of the Lord Jesus being on the earth. And so we have the Gospel of Luke. And so he doesn't get it all. And it's a little bit different, this um, section, to what Matthew's got. 
And I've heard some people describe Luke as the kind of light version of the Beatitudes and Matthew as the premium version. Uh, but all of the word of God is the premium version. But certainly it's true that Matthew adds more of these blessings, these Beatitudes, as they're called. Um, and it, it gives a bit more detail. Um, but Luke has something else for us as well that Matthew does not contain. And so we'll try and read these and understand these together as best we can. We'll use Matthew to add a little um, elucidation, a bit of light to uh, what Luke has for, for us here. The word beatitude doesn't mean be of the right attitude, as it sort of sounds. It literally just means blessing. And we've heard blessing all over today's service in what's been read to us already and around the Lord's table. And these blessings are very significant because they come with a response. Blessed are thee, for they shall. Blessed are thee, for they shall. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. So there's an important link going on in the Beatitudes. And we have to understand what the link is. When I first read the Beatitudes from Matthew, when I was uh, a much younger Christian, I sort of led through, read through this wonderful list and thought, which one of these do I get? <laughs> which one is for me? Which one of these blessings is what Sam gets? And of course, that's the wrong way to read them. It's the wrong way because we get them all, but it's also the wrong way because it's important for us to focus on what our condition should be like to receive these things. We can look at them in terms of what we inherit, but we can look at them also in terms of the condition of our hearts. So if you take away anything from today, I want you, please, to take away what your condition is, perhaps what it should be, and whether they're the same. This picture that comes from the blessings, the Beatitudes, is really a picture of the condition that we should have if we're going to become a Christian. Without these, we can't become a Christian. But it's also a picture of how we continue or should continue as a Christian. It's a picture of how we should endure as a Christian. So don't think of them as just nice little sayings 2,000 years ago. They're relevant now for how we come to the Lord and how we continue in the Lord and how we cope with the experiences of continuing in the Lord. And I was thinking, nobody ever asks you, or perhaps they have, I don't know, but no one's ever asked me, what is it like to be a Christian? They might say, what's it like to go to church? What's it like to be in your church? You know, what kind of church is it? How does it feel when you're part of it? But they don't ask what it's like to actually be a Christian. And I wonder if they did what we might say. The Apostle Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope which you have within you. And perhaps we talk about that. Someone says, Sam, what's it like? to be a Christian, I might say, well, it's full of hope. And it is. You might say that there's a joy 
in knowing Christ. And there is. I might focus on those positives. I might focus on what I inherit. But I probably wouldn't say it's a road of suffering. It's a road of hardship. It's hard to be a Christian. Would you agree? It's hard to be a Christian. Why? <laughs> because we're asked to be holy. <laughs> and we're not. We're asked to be and we're not. It's hard. It involves suffering. And the Beatitudes carry that truth. They carry the truth of the joy and the hope. And they carry the truth of the suffering and the mourning and the weeping. So let's try and understand them. Let's put together uh, those two ends, if we can. Let's go to Luke 6 again, and we'll start in, uh, in verse 20. And we're just going to really look at three of these. Uh, one of them in, in the Luke section is very similar to the other. It's a slightly different inflection, but I just want us to look at three, and then we'll consider what they mean for us. So Luke 6, verse 20 the Lord says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, directly spoke to them, that's what it means, and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor. Now, we read that and we have to say, what does he mean by poor? The word poor can mean lots of different things. Um, it can mean having no money. It can mean having no food. It can mean being um, in a context where we're not able to contribute as a, a member of society. In the modern era, in Australia, as a, a culture in our society that is regarded as poor because they don't have cultural skills to engage in society. There are physical poverties but there are also spiritual poverties. Now, is Luke or is the Lord saying that someone who is poor doesn't have enough to live? The answer is no. God appoints life. He appoints death, as we've been reminded this morning. So if we look at what Matthew says in this particular beatitude, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the poor in spirit does that mean that the poor in spirit are those people that don't have the same amount of spirit as someone else they're impoverished in the amount of spirit they have no that is not what it means literally means blessed are those who are humble who are lowly who do not think of themselves more highly than they ought. Humility. That's what being poor in spirit is. The opposite of this is to be arrogant, isn't it? To be proud, to be haughty. That's not poor in spirit. It's rich in self. Sounds good but it isn't to be poor in spirit is to be broken before God. The condition of the heart 
that allows us to inherit the kingdom of God is to be broken in spirit. But broken about what? What kind of humility are we on about here? That's quite straightforward. To be broken for our situation before God. Not our situation in the world, not our, the money in the bank or the type of job we do have or don't have and want. Our situation, our condition before God. Holy God. What is that condition? It's sinful. There's no reason for us to be arrogant or proud. There's every reason for us to be poor in spirit, humble, contrite, broken, because we are full of sin. Not something we like to be honest about that often. We should be. But it's true. We know this. We come and confess to Christ every Sunday morning. We should do that every day of our lives. This beatitude, this blessing is about recognizing our real condition before a holy God, sinful. Do you find that humbling? I find that humbling. Why? Because I often don't recognize that. I often am arrogant. And so are you. Not looking at any individuals. We're all like that. But to be poor in spirit, I need to be broken and sorrowful about my sinful nature. Without this kind of poverty, this recognition of who we really are, you cannot be saved. You cannot come to the cross of Christ and say, well, I'm not that bad a person. That's not coming to Christ at all. <laughs> That's coming near hell. It's getting near to the reality of what it means to be like that before a holy God. You have to be contrite. You have to recognize that God is who he says he is. Wrathful. Righteous. We heard from Romans 3 earlier on there. God has passed over former sins, but when the time came, his son was judged in our place. We have to get into that space. And if we get into that space and think that it doesn't pertain to us, that I'm not sinful, we've misunderstood the point. And we will never be humble and contrite and broken. So we will never inherit the kingdom of God. Did you hear it in the psalm? Did you hear David saying that in the psalm? Let me remind us in Psalm 51 again. Have mercy on me. What a great place to start. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. What is he saying? I know I am a sinner. I am poor in spirit. And my sin, he says, is ever before me. You can't deny it. You can't hide it. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then later he says, hide your face from me. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now listen, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will have the kingdom of God. Turn with me for a second to Luke chapter 18. Hopefully we'll get there sometime this year. But for now, let's just jump there. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, something I'm sure we've heard many times. But we'll go through it again very quickly. Luke 18, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking um, in that portion of Luke. He's telling parable after parable after parable. And here's another one. Luke 18, 9 says, He, Jesus, also told this parable, listen, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One a religious leader, the other someone that's despised. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A tax collector is humble, broken, contrite, because he knows he's a sinner. And the Pharisee is the opposite. He's arrogant and haughty and proud because he thinks he's religious. He believes he's righteous before a holy God. What a mistake. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the right way to come to God, isn't it? It's the only way to come to God. You cannot come to Christ for salvation without recognizing your sin. You can be sorrowful in this world. There's plenty of sorrow in the world, isn't there? You agree with that? It doesn't necessarily lead to Christ. The world has sorrow. But what's our sorrow like? Is it godly? What's the state of our hearts? Not what do we know? What is our condition? What is our status? Apostle Paul says, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow leads to death. The world is sorrowful, but it's not coming to God. 
COVID hasn't made a difference to the world's humility, has it? Let's see nations suddenly saying, let's fear God. And we have the absolute opposite um, reaction. Arrogance. We will, we will cure this. We will fight this. We will beat it. Maybe we will, but that will be by the grace of God. World wars do not cause people to fear God, though they should. Tsunamis. All the horrible things we could probably list that happened to people in the world. The persecuted church is different as we prayed this morning. Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief being poor in spirit. Woe is me, says Isaiah. I am a man of unclean lips. Where does he say that? In the temple, when it's quaking, when God appears. In the presence of the holy God, the prophet Isaiah recognizes that he is a sinner. That should be our response. So my question to you this morning, are you poor in spirit? Are you honest with who you are to God? He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly who I am, but am I prepared to be that honest with him and say, nothing good dwells in me. Have mercy on me, like the psalmist. So the second beatitude, verse 21, back in Luke 6, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And I really like this one. I like them all. But this one really stands out to me because, well, I experience hunger in a small way. I don't, you know, experience it the way some people do. And I satisfy that hunger by eating. We can satisfy hunger in lots of ways, but the reality is it never gets fully satisfied, does it? We're hungry for food. We need more. We need more. Are you hungry for the things in the world? J.D. Rockefeller, American oil magnate, or involved in the oil industry in the 1800s, who at the time was the richest man in the world, was asked once, how much is enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. Never satisfied. We never have enough. So what kind of hunger is the Lord talking about here? Well, again, if we go to Matthew, we get the extra bit that we need. It says, blessed are you or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungry for righteousness. That sounds a lot better than food and the things in the world. Hunger for righteousness, we hear in this blessing, brings satisfaction. Great. Amen. Sounds good to me. But what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than the things of the world? Well, literally, it means desiring to lead and live a holy life. Hungering, wanting righteousness in our lives. Why would we want that? We'd want that to bring glory to God, wouldn't we? That's the reason we're called to holiness, is to bring glory to God. And the question for me is, do I hunger for it? Do I have a, an angst that says, I want to please God? I, I want to be holy. I struggle with it, but I want to be. Do I hunger? Is it something I, I, I feel I have to have to live properly? 
Do I desire it? It's a battle, isn't it? If we're honest, there are times that it's easier to obey than others. And sometimes we obey, and let's be honest, sometimes we don't obey. It's a battle. Are we in it? Are we engaged in it? Because if we're not, we'll never be satisfied. We'll never get full satisfaction as a human being in the presence of God. Romans 7, one of the really paradoxical pieces of the book of Romans. Some might say that it's all like that. But Paul really expresses this battle, this tension between desiring to be righteous and holy and live for God and failing. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's being poor in spirit, isn't it? Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. I hunger for thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And he ends that section by saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? He gets it. He's poor in spirit. He's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know what he says next? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation in him. I'm free. It's a battle. Do you hunger, though? Do you thirst to obey God? Do you thirst to fight the good fight, as Paul would say later, for God's glory? Do you have the desire to obey Christ? Because if you do, one day you're going to be satisfied. What does that mean? You're going to be perfectly holy. Can you even imagine that? No more struggle against sin? To be able to obey Christ completely? To do everything in a way that brings him great glory? It's going to happen. If you're poor in spirit, if you hunger for this, you'll get the blessing. Well, the final beatitude that I want us to look at back in Luke 6 is verse 22, persecution. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Part of being a Christian is experiencing persecution. It's the bit we don't want to tell people about. It's one of the reasons that being a Christian is hard. And of course, there are different kinds of persecution. We've prayed for the persecuted church again this morning. We're experiencing horrific persecution. I thought of creating a list to express at this point, and the list was too scary. It would be offensive, but you can imagine, you know some of the things we've prayed for. People are dying. All the apostles except for John were put to death. You know that? Every single one of them. 
They were killed with a sword. One of them was dragged through the streets by a horse until he was dead. One of them was boiled. Several of them were crucified. Paul was beheaded. Only John, who incidentally they tried to kill, but somehow miraculously, by God's grace, died, uh, survived. He died of old age. And if he hadn't, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation. Amen. John survived breaking rocks on the island of Patmos. They all experienced persecution. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see how the church again and again and again throughout its history is a story of persecution. Satan is at work against God. The world is caught up in Satan's scheme. And so we are persecuted. Now, you might say, well, I don't experience a lot of persecution. And I would say two things to you. One, yes, you do, but perhaps not in the way that you might think. And two, if you don't experience it that much, stick around because it's coming. Australia in particular is exceedingly liberal and depraved nation. You might say the same of many other countries. But where we're headed is persecution. You cannot stand up and say, this is wrong. God says this is wrong without experiencing persecution. It's coming. If you stand up for it, that's what the Lord says. Blessed are you when you hate, when, when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And the more you stand up for Christ, the more you will be persecuted. In the late 80s, I used to work for a large forestry company in Scotland, and uh, we were just young men. And they employed a lot of school kids as menial workers. There was this one uh, little kid, I can't remember his name now, sadly, who was a born-again Christian. And he came to work. He was, I think, about 12. And he fearlessly shared the gospel. <laughs> it was incredible. I didn't know Christ. Uh, and he was derided. He was spurned. He was teased. He was taunted. And by one guy, he was slapped pretty nastily. But he carried on. And years later, after I became a Christian, Sandy and I were driving through a little town called Haddington in the east of Scotland. And I saw this lad <laughs> standing by the side of the road. And I pulled over the car and I got out and I went over and said, I'm a born again believer in Jesus Christ. And he wept and he said, my prayers have been answered. He, he prayed for his enemy. <laughs> and there was his enemy standing as a brother in front of him. You stand up for Christ and people call out Christ's name in vain. Do you say no? You're calling on a real person, a God, who can judge you in the twinkling of an eye, who died for your sin. You share the gospel. You're afraid of people. Be more afraid of God. Leap. Rejoice. Because <laughs> great is your reward in heaven. We should expect suffering. If you read John in what's called the departing discourse, the Lord says again, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecute me. Guess what? They're going to persecute you. Just have a little listen to the Apostle Paul for a second. Just soak this in. This is 2 Timothy 3. And Paul says, you, talking to Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, 
my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, listen, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer. You know what he's saying there? He's saying all those that are poor in spirit, who thirst and hunger for righteousness, well, guess what? They're going to they're express who they believe, what they, who they love, Christ, and they're going to suffer. Not might, not could. If they're unlucky, it could happen to shall suffer. And I don't want to challenge you too much, but I want to say if you're not suffering for the sake of the gospel, then start sharing the gospel a bit more. Because we should to some degree. We should consider it pure joy when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's what the word of God says. Poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You shall suffer, but great is your reward in heaven. What's the condition of your heart? I went to see Dr. Gary Baker uh, last year, I think it was, to check my heart. And he gave me the all clear. My heart's pretty good, apparently. But that's not what we're talking about, is it? That's a physical condition. What is the spiritual condition of my heart? Am I a Christian, number one? Two, if I'm a Christian, am I contrite? Am I broken? Am I repentant? Am I confessional? Am I searching and seeking God out? Am I hungering for righteousness? Am I honest about who I really am? Some years ago, I had to speak to a a whole room of consultants, management consultants from a particular company, and they'd asked me to come and speak to them about um, what it's like to be a consultant. And during the Q&A at the end, one of them asked me, uh, you know, if I could say one thing to help correct their behavior uh, as consultants, what would it be? And I said, well, you're terribly arrogant. Your whole modus operandi, the way that you engage with the customer is one of arrogance. I know stuff that you don't know. And I'm going to tell you about it so that you can change everything. I said, it comes over as really arrogant. Maybe try a different approach. And this chap said, well, you know, how do I resolve that problem? I said, well, what's the opposite of arrogance? He said, well, humility. I said, well, there's your answer. He said, great, thanks very much. As if the next morning he was going to wake up and say, today I'm going to be humble. <laughs> it's possible to have false humility, isn't it? I will be humble. How long is that going to last for? The truth is that we need a power at work in our lives to cause us to hunger for th and thirst for righteousness, to cause us to be poor in spirit to cause us to follow Christ, to cause us to be broken and contrite. You can't break yourself. I will be contrite. I will be humble. There has to be an external force that drives you to it. Have you heard the story of the two molehills in the paddock? It's obviously not a true story. One molehill says to the other, I'm slightly taller than you. 
I'm of more importance. My station in life is higher than yours. And the other molehill says, yeah, but look at Everest behind you. In comparison to the station and status in life that is highest, we're nothing. We can barely be seen. The question is, what is the Everest of the cosmos? What is the station and status of absolute perfection and holiness in the cosmos? And the answer is, it's God. It's Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. He became a molehill. He became a mere man. As the poet has said, it was much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man, twas much, much more. It's an Everest of holiness. Becomes a baby. Where do we see the glory of this holiness? Where do we see this Everest shining brightest? And the answer is it's on the cross. It's on the cross of Christ. It's standing before Christ and seeing his holiness and how he was perfectly righteous. He hungered and thirsted for it, but he was it. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet here he is on a cross in front of us, standing, hanging rather, and saying, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Punish me instead of them. That's the power, isn't it, that makes us humble? Isn't it? It should be. If anyone gets too arrogant or too puffed up or haughty, what do you do with them as a Christian? You say, hey, let's come back. Let's recognize that Christ died for our sins. Somebody said to me the other day, they were really angry. And I said to them, you have no right to be angry. And they got more angry <laughs> at me. I said, you've no right. And eventually they said, why not? And I said, because Christ forgave you. He forgave you for your sins. You can't be angry with anyone. The Bible's really harsh about it. It's really tough about this. If you don't forgive others their sins, then neither are your sins forgiven. What's the Lord saying? He's saying, well, if you're not forgiving other people, then you should question whether you're a Christian. Do you know the parable of the unforgiving servant? Think about that. It's a power. The cross is a power. It expresses that. It's the power to save. Well, how does it work? That causes us to see two fundamental things. One, he is holy and he doesn't deserve this death in my place. And two, I am not holy and I deserve the death in my place. Why would you do that? Jesus, come down from the cross. No, I'm staying here because I love you. Because you matter to me. Because the Father's law that we heard about. So God could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Because that matters more. Because the holiness and honor and glory of the Father matters more. So I will do this. Because I love you. If you don't know that. If you don't know Christ in that way. If you don't know that he is truly holy. Truly righteous. And incidentally, truly humble and broken and contrite. If you don't know that, then you will never know the nature of your sin. To come to Christ, just like the psalmist, have mercy on me. Uphold your righteousness. 
purge me with hyssop. You delight in the broken and contrite heart. I'm a sinner. That's what David is saying. And I'm going to say to you, and so am I. And you're all saying, and so am I. Jesus Christ is the Everest in the cosmos. Who shall ascend the hill? Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Can he do that? Only Jesus can do that. So consider, please, the condition of your heart this morning. Consider your attitude towards God now, right this minute. Consider it tomorrow. Consider it on Tuesday. Be broken, be contrite, be poor in spirit. Because Luke has something else to add that Matthew doesn't have. Jump back to Luke chapter 6. The Lord has doled out the blessings. And then he says this in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. You've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you're going to be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, because they did the same to the false prophets. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. There is no other place to go. Recognize who you are, what you're really like, and beg for mercy. And if you have already come to Christ, Try to focus on him, not what's going on in your life. Focus on Christ and his promises, because I want you to know this. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, because you will inherit the kingdom of God. Amen? Blessed are you who are hungry and you thirst for righteousness now, you're going to be satisfied. Amen? Blessed are you who weep now because one day when Christ returns or you get called home, you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man because you are going to rejoice in that day, you are going to leap for joy. Daniel's grandmother is leaping for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And what's the reward? It's Jesus. Is there a better reward than Jesus? Do you want anything else? <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that your son is the reward. We thank you, Lord, that um, as we are 
working out our salvation in fear and trembling. Your cross towers over us and causes us to recognize who we really are and what we're really like. Lord, surely there is nothing good in us but you, but your word, but your spirit. So, Lord, this week I pray that we would be poor in spirit because we recognize who we really are, we recognize who you really are, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, to obey you, to be like your son. Lord, that we would leap for joy when we're persecuted because we're persecuted for Jesus' sake. Father, please change us, make us new, urge us with hyssop, help us to delight, help us to see that you delight, Lord, in a broken and contrite heart. In Jesus' name, amen.